the Mindset Athlete Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition, and mindset coaching business. And each week on the Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message, or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Erez Avramov. He's the founder of Amputy Strong. So welcome onto the show, Avrez. Hey, James. Good to be here. So for, before we delve into today's topic, Avrez, can you give a brief uh, introduction to yourself to my listeners? Sure. Um, so for myself... Let's start with the big picture. I am uh, 46 years old now, originally from Israel, but uh, moved to Canada. It's almost 15 years now. Uh, a father has two daughters, 15 and 12, married, and um, life has been going like every other person's life uh, usually until 2010, where I was involved in a major car accident. That was my introduction to uh, a life-changing event. It was a head-on collision with a fully loaded semi-truck that pretty much left me broken into a gazillion pieces. I mean, usually chances of survival are very low from accidents like this. So I was fortunate uh, to be in a position where I did survive. That's why I'm here today (laughs) doing the work that I do as well. But the effect of the accident left me basically disabled. Uh, Most of my injuries recovered and healed over time, but my ankle never did. It was a very, very um, complicated injury, lost some uh, major arteries and nerves in that area, constant pain and just no solution that was proposed to me was something that I would have wanted to pursue. It was all almost experimental surgeries or patches upon patches to try and fix something that pretty much was unfixable. And that was my introduction to the amputee world because when the medical solutions that were offered were not something I wanted to pursue, the only other at the time seemed to be extreme option, but uh, the only other option was an elective amputation. And at that point, I decided to really dive in and learn about the amputee world, reached out to many amputees. The decision for me was to reach out to amputees who had an active lifestyle and that lived a life that I would have been happy with if I had that freedom of movement Uh, that most of them had. And it really brought me to the point where I got connected to several amputees. Uh, One main uh, influence on my decision and my process was a local guy, uh, which I found through his uh, blog, right? And this is why the work that we do, James, yourself, and, and the work that I do for the amputee community, I think is so powerful because for most of us, we're not we're not exposed to the entire spectrum of options and information and knowledge out there. It is such a fragmented industry that we are in because the amputee world, unfortunately, 
is dominated by the manufacturers and the service providers. We are kind of the end users of it, but we are not empowered to make decisions or to pursue a certain path that we feel will be best for us. We give all our power away to you know, doctors and experts and the manufacturers themselves based on what they choose to present to us. And at that time, I, exa- I was in exactly that place. I felt that um, the decisions or the options that were offered to me were just not, they didn't give me the full picture. And for example, my orthopedic surgeon that had to perform, I would say, almost half a dozen surgeries after the accident just to install and remove hardware and do all the work that, you know, they're genius in what they do, but their worldview is very, very limited to their kind of specialization. And for him, he was in the mindset of an amputation is insanity. And to hear that from your surgeon is something that can definitely put you in a spot where you would be so fearful of even pursuing that avenue of idea that you will fall back into their suggestions and if I would have, this is based on stories that I've heard. And again, this, nothing here is conclusive. Nothing here is to say what's right, what's wrong. We're all different. We all deal with different situations. And this is a caveat I usually share with everybody that I speak with. Our situations are unique. Nothing is a one-size-fits-all, not in terms of a solution and not in terms of the journey. I think, and this is my deepest belief, is that We are given these lessons, as horrific and terrible as there may be, for a reason. And I do believe that the people that receive those lessons are strong enough to deal with them and grow through that process. Otherwise, you wouldn't survive. Otherwise, certain accidents or certain conditions lead to death relatively quickly. But those of us who are probably listening to this podcast today or who have survived, you know, maybe even several Uh, life-threatening situations, which I will share during this podcast with your audience, because for me, it wasn't just one near-death experience. It was actually three, which is insane. Every time that I say it again out loud, it just sounds completely almost like a science fiction movie or something, right? That uh, Spielberg will put together to make uh, an interesting (laughs) um, plot. But, But it is real. And it is life. And if anything for myself I've learned throughout time was that life is real. We wake up and we go to sleep with ourselves, with our thoughts, with our bodies. And what we're capable of doing is dictated by that. So when we will dive further into the physical realm and into the mental mindset realm, Uh, it's very obvious that the connection is direct. It's very obvious that when we are on a path of, I call it mastering our deficiencies because that's where we enter into this journey. Something happened, physical, mental, psychological, relationship, financial, doesn't matter what the trigger is. It pushes us now to work with that deficiency and become better, not because we are deficient, but because the situation we are dealing with put us in a position that 
we have to grow with it. So this was my entry point to this entire journey. It was uh, from a very, very difficult um, health, life-threatening condition. The first three months, I was on a 50-50 chance of survival, you know, like many devastating, horrific accidents or diseases put us on that edge with death. And those of us who are fortunate, fortunate and blessed enough to survive now start a new journey, a journey of rejuvenation, a journey of growth, a journey of understanding uh, of who we are. Not necessarily why it happened. I think this is usually a very detrimental question to ask, although it's a normal question to ask, because there is no real answer to that. Uh, I think it's a rabbit hole that leads to a dead end. And we can be on that journey to try and figure out why our entire lives, and it will take all the energy away from growing. So that is kind of the first phase of what got me into this whole amputee world. And my injuries at the time were such that I had to deal with them in a consecutive manner. So I had to deal, first of all, with my respiratory system that was badly damaged, both my legs collapsed. I broken all my ribs. My sternum was broken in two places. So there were certain phases, let's put it this way, that I had to work with, uh, skeletal, respiratory, and all of those things that health is uh, related to. But after, I would say about a year, was my tipping point in health. I moved from kind of a survival stage into a, okay, now I can manage my life. Sleep was relatively under control. Not that it was any good, but I slept as opposed to the early stages where there was no sleep available. Pain was still tremendously high, but it was somewhat under control. So it wasn't 24-7. It was kind of bouts of uh, pain here and there. But then I had to really make a decision about lifestyle. And how do I want to live my life? What do I want to do? And this is when the elective amputation actually came to the forefront of, okay, so what am I going to do with it? And I've done my research. I'm a great proponent of self-research and self-education because we are the only ones who will make the decision at the end. We are the only ones who have to live with the consequences of whatever decision we make. And I knew that when I contemplated the elective imputation, the chances were 50-50. I could have recovered very well for 50% of it, and the other side of it was maybe I wouldn't. Maybe my condition would have been worse than I started with. So that realization of we are responsible for our own decisions because we have to live with the consequences have led me to be much more conscious of how I navigate my life. And I think that the health challenge kind of pushed me to explore those areas in a much deeper way and provided a, an unbelievable opportunity to experiment with my life on the physical side of it, the mental side of it, the spiritual side of it, the relationship side of it, so at the end, and I think this is a silver lining that most of us uh, can agree with, um, 
with you, James, I know from your story and I know from others as well that these situations have allowed us to realize our true potential, not as an unlimited type of personality, because we are limited. And let's face it, all of us that are challenged physically within the amputee world, our limitation is based on our physical condition. Yes, we can do a lot of things. Yes, we want to conquer the world. But that physical challenge does put us in a position where we have to do things differently. And this is what I've learned along the way. And obviously you mentioned there that you, you had uh, free life or death situations. I'm, I'm assuming my listeners are very uh, put on tender hooks as to what the other two is. I, I had the pleasure of speaking to you previously, so I know what one of them is, but if you could go into more detail with what the other two is, I bet you'd be very interested to hear that. Sure. Yeah, I'll be happy to share that. So we'll go back to the decision to go with an elective amputation. And after I did my research, after I met with amputees and saw their lifestyle and with the challenges, because the one thing I've learned was that most of us, especially the more experienced uh, amputees or, or, or somebody who's more experienced with the life challenge that they mastered to some degree, we tend to forget the early stages, the difficulties and the challenges and the day-to-day. And we sometimes tend to portray a picture of, you know, you can manage, it'll pass and, and life will be better. But I was fortunate enough to be around early stage amputees and long-term amputees, which are, you know, 10, 15, 20 years into it. And definitely the differences are day and night almost because the challenges of a 15-year amputee versus the challenges of uh, someone who had his amputation a year or two years ago are completely two different stories. But once again, I think the, uh, the community, the Information that was available, uh, Facebook was already accessible at the time. So there were Facebook groups, which I found to be a great resource to ask questions and to get to know people that uh, I wanted to communicate with. And all of that led me to make the decision that an elective amputation was the right thing for me to do. So I prepared for that. I had almost a year and a half to prepare because other surgeries had to take place. Some hardware had to be removed before the amputation. But again, that just gave me enough time to dive deeper into preparation mode, which was all about nutrition, how to nourish the body and prepare it for another huge physical ordeal, physiotherapy, you know, how the body function, um, health, fitness, all the things that we know that we need to do well in order to get back on track. So that was, for me, a beautiful journey, actually, because, first of all, I love to learn. And now it was, I had to learn something that would be 100% beneficial for myself. So it wasn't just general knowledge. It wasn't just uh, learning something to um, know a bit more. It was all to be implemented personally, which made a huge difference in how I studied and how I implemented what I studied. Because I am a type of person, 
uh, that love to experiment. And based on my own results, I can buy into whatever it is I'm doing or not. Because if the results are not there, then either I did it wrong, which I can admit uh, when I do it, or if it was great, then that's uh, the results are there. So moving forward a little bit, the elective amputation took place uh, in uh, May of two, 2013. And I remember the day, the minute actually, when I sat in the uh, operating theater and they were about to uh, put me down for, it was about two hours of, of the entire surgery. It was my test of surrender because as much as I thought, oh, I'm prepared and I really hope that everything will be good when I get out of it, I didn't really know. And uh, at least the surgeon was, uh, was real enough to share that, you know, I'm going to do my best here, but how your body will react to it is not up to me anymore. So the amputation took place. And it started with three months of extremely um, challenging um, months, excruciating pain. I suffered the phantom pain uh, in a way that it was 24-7. It was just relentless. I uh, couldn't sleep, couldn't eat. I thought I was going out of my mind. Uh, the initial recovery was tough because I had some infection around the seam line of the amputation. So I couldn't be fitted. I couldn't actually start rehab. And of course, this is where mindset comes into play because that was, for me, the darkest period of dealing with consequences of what I have chosen to do. I've chosen an elective amputation, and I was now faced with a result that was very, very difficult to cope with. Um, and, and when you're in, a, in such a dark place, Depression takes uh, hold of you, your entire worldview becomes dark, and it's a very difficult place to try and climb out of. So for me, I was, again, fortunate to have access to a very strong support team, medical, psychological, mental, family. It was just a very strong structure that allowed me to cope with that period of time, and Time does help us, and you do heal over time, and that was exactly my situation. Uh, I did mirror therapy that completely changed my life in terms of uh, phantom limb pain. It eradicated 100% of it. And I know that for some people, when they hear it, it sounds a little bit, uh, you know, abracadabra or whatever, because there's there's a misconception about mirror therapy. It is a rewiring of the brain, which I experienced personally. So I am a living example of that. And it's something I used to doubt in the past. But other experiences have shown me that it's completely different. So all of the tools that I've studied and learned and implemented prior to the amputation came into play with my recovery. And as soon as I was able to be fitted, Uh, And really, at that point, uh, everything that I've learned kicked in 100%. This was my full-time job. I would say that today I'm close to 10,000 hours of continuous, what I call recovery uh, education, on a mental, physical, nutritional, um, emotional levels. It's a never-ending journey, and I don't think it will ever end, which is beautiful, because if it ends, then what's left? (laughs) So I was fitted three months after the amputation 
and was very, very fortunate to realize that I'm in a very strong position to recover in a relatively um, in, in, a, in a relatively, I wouldn't say fast, because time is very tricky with uh, physical injuries. But I was able to walk very, very quickly with no aids. I was able to ride a bicycle, you know, started with an exercise bicycle and then a regular bicycle, went back behind the wheel uh, and had to conquer all my mental issues and fears about driving because it was a car accident. And all of those things were milestones that pushed me forward. And I'm a very physical guy to begin with. I was always a competitive athlete and I served in the Israeli military in um, an elite Air Force commando unit. So that military service have completely transferred into this amputation recovery process in a very powerful way because military service is something that I always say it's like a uh, double-edged sword. Uh, on one hand, you grow very fast. You learn things that you would never learn in a lifetime outside of the military um, um, universe, and you experience things you will never experience in any other environment. So those are amazing tools and techniques and um, experiences that allowed me, I think, to deal with certain areas in my life in a much more militant way. And I say militant with... Uh, uh, a grain of salt here because it did fire back against me at times because I was so hard-headed, so uh, goal-oriented, so achievement-oriented. You know, like yourself, James, you're an athlete and you know it. We have a, a very specific mindset that allows us to achieve tremendous things, but at the same time can be a detriment to our own process because if we don't reach those goals or if we don't achieve them in a certain way uh, we get very very um, judgmental about ourselves so that was you know my journey which basically led me to get back to life uh, one of my biggest goals at the time was to ski with my daughters because when the accident happened they were very young and I live in Canada, which uh, in Vancouver, Canada, we have beautiful local mountains here to world acclaimed resorts uh, like Whistler Mountain. And I used to ski a lot prior to the accident and I wanted to get back skiing, but I didn't want to just go back um, skiing. I wanted to ski with my daughters. So that was a very motivating goal for me. Uh, and we have a local organization here in Vancouver called VAS that help people with disabilities to get back. Uh, on the slopes and, you know, they use adaptive skiing or, or different techniques and uh, tools to help you. And within May was the amputation. And in January, I actually skied with my daughters for the first time ever. So for myself, one of the ways I recovered, and I find this to be a great path for so many of us that deal with physical challenges, it is to first go back to our physical activities that we had in the in the past that we love to do. And then we set ourselves up with a, an insane goal. It seems to be a theme, especially with high performers. Uh, what am I going to do? I'm going to, for somebody, it could be, let's say, if it's a, a, a lower limb amputation, 
then it will be to run or to do a certain physical event or to participate in a race or climb a mountain, whatever it may be. Uh, over time, I uh, coined this as the amputee strong vehicle. It's something relatively crazy that we think we cannot do, but we choose to do because it will give us motivation. It will help us go through those challenges. Um, and for myself, I chose an insane goal because I saw that my recovery was so well, I decided to go back to ride motorcycles, which was a passion of mine my entire life. I always rode motorcycles, street motorcycles, more touring motorcycles, not sports or stuff like that, touring and off-road motorcycles. My passion was around enduro motorcycling, very, very physically challenging, very, very demanding. It's, it's like a grueling um, sport, right? Which for my personality is something I loved. I really liked the challenge of pain and discomfort during physical activity. I don't know what it is. It's a, it's a form gene that so many of us have <laughs> and we seek the pain. And at that point, I have to admit, I didn't think about it as a problem seeking pain and challenging myself to that level because I was so adamant to find my rhythm in life again. And I thought that a physical challenge will give me that. So I chose to train to become the first amputee in the world to race the toughest, longest off-road race in the world called the Dakar Rally. And at that point, there was... Never there was an amputee that raced it on a motorcycle. And I said, well, okay. So I wanted to race the car probably three times in my life. Uh, a lot of it had to do with my military service because I was a specialized uh, driver of different types of vehicles. And I was exposed to that world, to the world of off-road um, travel and racing as well. But my, throughout my life, I always had excuses. Why not to? It's too expensive. I left Israel. I immigrated to Canada. I have to set my life there. Uh, work, money, always an excuse. And after the accident happened and after the uh, uh, amputation took place, I felt that this was my chance to do it now. If I don't do it now, I thought, oh, my God, I will never do it ever. And I was capable of doing it. So I started to ride motorcycles, um, very, very challenging at the beginning, the control of the bike, being safe on the bike and all of that. But over time, I, um, I'm a very technical guy as well, so I modified the bike to accommodate for my uh, physical uh, imbalance and how I control the bike and realized that I can. So that brought me to really start and train for the Dakar Rally like a madman. I actually took upon myself the mindset of a Paralympian. I've trained with a Paralympian. I was uh, personally trained. A local gym here in uh, Vancouver uh, took me under their wing. Uh, they're called Innovative Fitness. And the guy that used to head that uh, gym, his name is Merrick Jones, an awesome guy. He's an amputee, left leg below the knee who also chose sports as his avenue to deal with his amputation. Took place 20 years ago, but he became a uh, triathlete, uh, Ironman. You know, he chose that path. 
And he trained me throughout that, plus some other trainers. So it was an insane year and a half of nothing but training. You can relate to that, right? Very much so. Yeah, so the demands are insane. Time, effort, um, finances, everything. And I chose a motorized sport, which is extremely expensive because it's not just the machines that you train on and they wear very, very quickly. So there's always maintenance, but you have to race all, all the time. And these races are all over North America. So you have to travel, you have to take your gear, you have to do all of those things. So the commitment was 100%. There was no deviation of what I wanted to do. But um, during that process, uh, I participated in one race in Baja, um, Mexico. That was a pre-qualifying race for the Dakar Rally. And on the second day of that race, I was involved in a horrific accident, off-road accident, completely my fault. Uh, I concentrated too much on the navigation instruments on my bike because the type of racing that the Dakar Rally is um, part of is desert rail rally racing with navigation. So you have several instruments on your handlebars with a map and a compass and uh, digital odometers and things like that. And you have to compute all those things together to know where you are because you don't have a map. You have what's called a roadmap. It's kind of directions. In 200 meters, you have to turn right next to this tree or whatever. So you have to be very proficient in reading instruments and controlling a motorcycle and dealing with off-road obstacles at the same time. I think this is the challenge that most people are attracted to in this sport, which is completely insane, but uh, we all are to some degree, <laughs> right? Yeah. So anyways, um, my navigation tower that holds all these instruments got damaged and it rattled all the time. So I couldn't get a clear reading of my instrument. So I had to hold with my left hand the navigation tower to hold it in place and then with one hand control the bike so I can see a little bit what's going on, lift my head, look ahead and continue. And this is a very, very bad practice in uh, desert racing, <laughs> which uh, what happened was that you do this, I would say, uh, every second minute sometimes and sometimes even twice in a minute because the terrain changes so quickly. So it's almost impossible to try and navigate this way. And uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't able to fix that navigation tower. So it continued on and on and on until one time it was just too long gazing at this um, navigation instrument. And when I lifted my head, there was this sand dune in front of me. I was probably doing 60, 70 kilometers an hour. And I just went straight into it. I couldn't do anything. It was way too late. Um, crashed, flew over the handlebar. I saw the bike flipping to my side. At that point, I had uh, some sort of, uh, you know, some people call them out-of-body experiences. But at that point, it was a rude awakening. Because before I hit the ground, I realized that I'm insane that something is wrong with what I'm doing, what I'm pursuing, risking my life. I survived a near-fatal car accident. I went through an elective amputation, got back to a good life with, as an amputee. You know, sometimes we are so challenged 
we never get back to a manageable lifestyle because of the amputation. And I managed to do that. And then I chose to go and do this extreme sport endeavor. And here I am almost killing myself riding a motorcycle. And I had to ask the question at that point, why am I doing this? And that question was in my head before I hit the ground. And I realized that I'm done. I'm done with physical endeavors. Uh, They're not going to take me anywhere. The answers I need are not out there. I needed the journey. And I have to say this is a major part of the amputee process of recovery. You need a physical journey. But very quickly, you realize that the journey is internal. And when I hit the ground, I broke seven ribs. I punctured the lung. I dislocated my shoulder. I broke my left um, wrist. And it was a a horrible process to get back home because I was in Mexico. There was no freaking way I'm going into a hospital there or being treated there. Forget about it. Uh, And I actually was at a very risky, almost life-threatening situation because I had to fly back. And I had a punctured lung, and I didn't know it was punctured. Anyways, long story short, managed to come back home, realized that the damage is irreversible now. So I have, out of those seven ribs, I have four ribs that have aligned themselves in an X shape and are fused. So, you know, I can still do things, whatever, but uh, the risk of falling and breaking them again is, is very high. And if they do, they can, you know, penetrate the lung or, God forbid, uh, the heart. So I realized that that pursuit of physical endeavors carries a very, very hefty weight. Uh, And the price could be tremendous. And one of the doctors that uh, took care of me after this uh, incident shared with me that the way that I fell, I was probably three to four degrees away from the angle my, my neck hit the ground to be in a wheelchair or not to be here at all. And those realizations of the risk we're willing to take or the enormous uh, degradation we put our bodies through doing these extreme activities came to be a very realistic understanding of mine. And that second near-death experience really shifted my entire journey. I call it my inner Dakar now, because I I realized the answer is not outside there. And even if I would have raced Dakar and even if I would have finished it, then what? I mean, I've done it so many times in my life. I wanted to climb a certain mountain. I wanted to run a marathon. I wanted to do a triathlon. I did all those things. And then at the end, you are elated for, I don't know, a few minutes, maybe an hour, two hours, maybe a day if you're lucky. And then you wake up the day after and you say, okay, what, what next? I need the next, the next high. I need the next challenge. I need the next thing. And my journey through this whole period was to really understand that, first of all, my main driver was adrenaline. That was uh, almost an addiction. It wasn't almost. You know what? Today, I, I can really look at it and say the adrenaline is an addiction. It's not talked about, especially not in our athletic kind of high extreme type of sports uh, industry. We don't talk about it. Uh, We talk about inspiration. We talk about aspiration. We talk about 
the wish to be on a podium and to win a medal and everything in, included in it. But it's a very specific type of personality that can go through that journey. And for many of us, it's this adrenaline rush that we need uh, and we seek. And we keep raising the bar more and more because like with any addiction, you know, the uh, potency uh, declines over time. So you have to get a, a higher hit. And it took me a while. It took me a lot of uh, inner work to realize that and to understand that if I don't deal with that, I will go back and try and find another challenge because this is what we all do. Um, but that two-year journey was extremely powerful for me. That was a period of time where I started to mentor other amputees as well, started to speak publicly, started to write, share the journey and all, of, all sorts of other things. And I've started to see certain patterns that uh, we all go through. And this has really helped me to put together uh, this program that I run today, which called, is called Amputee Strong, which I've started about a year ago. Um, but with everything that went through my life, <laughs> I was introduced to a third near-death experience that almost came out of nowhere because I was in these two years of a beautiful place in my life. I was in a much more peaceful place, much more accepting place. I realized certain things of why I do things, why I don't need to do things. It was just peaceful. You know, there's something that I've learned over the years, and I call it the junction, and I always use my fingers. I call it the junction between easiness with I-S and easiness with E-A-S. That junction between easiness of life of being in life as being in it now and walking through life with some inner peace and easiness. Not to say that life is easy, not to say that, oh, I figured it all out and my life is a dream. Ah, forget about it. Every day is a different challenge. Every time something happens, we have to deal with it. But I think that over time we gain tremendous tools that really help us um, work with it. So that was a, a tremendous um, benefit that I could harvest after uh, those two years because almost out of the blue, I, was, uh, I had a full-on heart attack that almost killed me. And doesn't matter what instigated the heart attack, it was another car accident. Somebody rear-ended me and started an entire process of whiplash, side effects. But it's a complicated process. We don't, don't need to get into details. But the reality was that here I am again, staring death in the eye and realizing that, I mean, that this is life. This is life. We're here, and in a fraction of a second, we cannot be here. And that third encounter with death and mortality really propelled me to pursue this path of um, helping others in a way that, not to say that I have the answer. I'm the first one to admit that the more we learn, the more we so-called understand, the more we um, investigate certain paths, the more we know how much we don't know. But there are certain elements along the journey that are vital to help us navigate through it. Right, and we all have our own journeys, and this is what brought to life the Amputee Strong program. 
But on the funny side of it, Ares, you're a little bit like, well, in ill seriousness as well, put aside, you're more like a cat as opposed to a human. When you got, you used to like three or nine lives. Yeah, I, I admit this is something that I, I do see myself as very blessed. Uh, there is some, some, some sort of protection uh, that is in place uh, because it's not my time, apparently. And we don't know where our time is. And I have to say that going through three near-death experiences three times within less than 10 years is insane. The, you know, when I write about it and when I dive deeper into certain areas of, of trying to understand the impact it has, um, it, is, it is the reason that I feel that for most of us, including yourself, James, on this journey, when we learn something based on experience, when we learn something that has helped us, I believe that it is our duty to share it with others. Not to say that what we share with them will fix them or heal them or make everything better for them, but you've, exp- you've been given a lesson. You've been given an experience for a reason. And if you survived it, and if you found ways to deal with it, it is your duty to share what worked for you. Again, not in a dogmatic way to say to somebody else, oh, you have to do this or that. No, 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 no. You want to expose them to the opportunity. You know this probably as much as I do, because when we work with our fellow amputees in our community, we hear this story again and again. How many times do they say, oh, I've never heard about this, or I didn't know this, or what you just said or what you just shared completely shifted how I look at myself and my journey. And those are the nuggets. It's not necessarily to give something that will fix everything. Sometimes one thought, one kind of idea can provoke the listener to make them think about themselves in a different way. And all of a sudden, they decide to pursue something uh, that, you know, can help them. And I think that's, that's the gift. But you, you do see that in the, in the consensus of the general populace as well, because uh, I had a mentor-type person say to me, well, why don't you utilize your disability as a vehicle to produce content? And probably because it's staring you straight in the face, you don't think of it because it's the, you you see it day in day out. Oh, it's it's not a um, an adverse situation for me because I don't see it like like you mentioned. We don't see it as such because because it's so far removed the actual difficulties in life. You don't really see you you see the good in things, and that's about it. So when he said it from the, that perspective, as treated as such, you're thinking. Well, yeah, everybody has, as you said, a deficiency, an amputation to life. They have to um, overcome a certain thing, whatever it is. That is their limiting, uh, what we could call it, we could call it the term that most disabled people don't like use, a disability, in effect, to, to overcome. Well, I think... You know, when you when you use the word disability, it can it has different connotations, right? And I think if we try and put it in a more usable form, for me, I like to address it as a challenge. A disability is something you don't get over. 
A disability is something that disabled you. So you're abled, but now you're disabled. So it takes away a part of how you operate and navigate through life. And it doesn't matter what it is, if it's a mental situation, a uh, physical condition, whatever the case may be, initially, yes, it is a disability because it took away something that maybe you are able to do or something that you want to do and, and you're challenged with. But your journey now is to find your way of how to handle this. And I think that is the entry point of personal growth. That is the entry point of self-inquiry. And to be honest, not everybody wants to do this work because it's hard work. It really is. It's much more difficult than any other physical challenge or experience I had in my entire life. I can say sometimes that it is more difficult than a near-death experience, right? And the reason is because you have to stare yourself in the eye every single day and be there with yourself with the good that you've done, with the bad that you've done, with your deficiencies, with your inability to stay on track, with the crazy thoughts that go in your mind. And those are the challenges that, are, that make us human, right? That's, I, I find it beautiful. You know, every time that I fail, and I fail multiple times every day, I laugh. I joke about it. I, I, I just, I say, wow, here it is again. <laughs> I mean, there is no perfection. There is no destination. That, oh, when I get there, my life will be awesome. No, there isn't. But when you're able to see life with some humor, when you're able to not take yourself too seriously, when you're able to share your journey in a way that makes sense to you and to others, I think that's the beauty. That's where it is. But do you think that is through self-growth and self-development that you've been able to be aware of that first and foremost and be able to respond accordingly? I think we all enter into this path in different ways. It could be from a very physical endeavor, you know, like uh, an athletic journey where you want to become, you know, a Paralympian or or you want to be a high-performance athlete or an extreme athlete. I think it's an easier entry point through the physical. So most of us will find that in order to commit to our goal, our physical goal, you know, to become the best uh, runner or swimmer or mountain climber or cyclist, whatever it is, we now have to deal with the mental world and the self-development world to accompany the ability to reach that goal. It cannot be separated. You cannot become a super athlete without the right mindset, without a broader view of what life is, without a, an understanding of how you operate on a physical level, because you need to take care of your nutrition and your physical regime and everything else. But if you don't have the mental capacity, the clarity, the right mindset, you will not be able to persist because the challenges are there. You will get injured. It will be painful. You will think you'll never... Uh, be able to achieve the goal. You would think that you've hit your maximum capacity and that's it. You'll, you'll never be faster or stronger. And yet we all know that's not true. There's always another level. But it is a case of always challenging that or is there a case in point, and I'll let you answer that from your specific opinion, in terms of getting to this next level, it's not always a case of not necessarily striving for it because this next level way of thinking is kind of a little bit guru-ish in terms of, well, does it really exist? 
but it's 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 challenging probably your like you said your inner self first and foremost as to can it be done but generally when you talk about athletes at a high level that element of self-doubt doesn't really occur that often or if it does it's kind of pushed to one side straight away well if I take this on board too much I'm going to start believing it so it's there I'm not going to entertain the thought and let's move on and, and, and kind of keep in that positive light as to generally you'll see it from it will be the journalist that will say, well, are you nervous? The athlete never thinks about it from that perspective. He's, he looks at it with enviousness. Uh, I've, I've waited my entire life to get to this moment. So why, why would I be nervous? It, it's, it's, I've realized, uh, a childhood dream. So it's, it's that, that of excitement all the time. Yeah. And I think this is why we keep uh, challenging ourselves and we want to move to another level and another level and set the bar higher, which is a beautiful thing to do because this is what allows you to explore the areas you need to explore. And, you know, if you're an athlete, then you will do this through sports. But we all know that as an athlete, there's a certain window that is open for you. So while you're in that window, you will gain the knowledge and the experiences that you need at that particular point. But then you'll have to transition from a competitive athlete to something else. Now those tools and those mindsets and how you set yourself up will dictate how well you will cope with the transition. Because if your mind was always of a high achiever of, I will attain any goal that I want and my body is a vehicle and I will train it and I will smash the hell out of it and it will perform the way I want it. And then you realize after a while, maybe based on an injury or you get older, wow, I actually need to respect my body, right? It's not just a vehicle that I go in there and drive it and it does whatever I want. There's actually a, a very delicate relationship between the driver and the vehicle. Um, so I think on that level, this is where you use these experiences and tools to move from one section to the next. I left the athletic extreme world and the transition for me was somewhat more delicate. I wouldn't say easy, but was somewhat more delicate with myself because of the experiences and the tools and the mindset that have allowed me to work through the physical challenges. Now they've been transferred into this other side of the journey. So they all complement each other. And I think that when you're in a certain challenge that you've set up yourself to take, if, and you know inside of you, I mean, your inner voice always tells you if it's the right thing to do or not. If you have to fight against it, then you know it's not. Sometimes we do continue. But if you know that this is your path and this is what you need to do, you will do whatever it takes including risking your life. I was there. I'm not uh, different than anybody else. You would go to that extreme to achieve that particular, and I don't call them goals anymore. I call them states because we do everything for the experience of it. We don't do it for the medal. We don't do it for the accolades. Maybe at the beginning, this is what we think will give us the uh, benefit, but we do it for the experience. We want to feel something uh, in a certain way. and those journeys allow us to do it i think i could learn a two to learn a thing or two from you in terms of having that mindset in terms of 
that transition period because I probably was very much still stuck in the athlete mentality, making that transition. Uh, it's quite a destru- destructive one to a certain extent because you don't treat your body the way it should be treated as you age. And maybe you don't respect it as much as, say, you talk of it being a, as a vehicle, you're being very much taking it off-road and it's not an off-road vehicle. Uh, and that's what I, I, I mean by that because I think as you age, you think you're kind of indestructible and it's very much the the younger generation athlete mentality well, I can do anything to it because it's designed to withstand. It's in the past; it's withstood everything that I've put in front of it. It's going to be the, be able to do that forever, uh, forever more, and, and time time allowing. I think that's uh, we learn through experience. We mature. We um, we actually experience through our body what it's capable to do and not. And of course, this is why the pinnacle of uh, Olympians is, you know, in their late teens, kind of early 20s. That's where the peak is because the body is so built to take whatever you throw at it and add to that some talent, add to that tenacity and great training and, and facilities and all of that together. And yes, you can create tremendous results. But I think that Because the conversation, especially in the uh, performance world, uh, is really not about longevity. It's really not about transitioning from certain stages to others. And I've, I've worked with athletes that were stuck in that transition place because it's not that they can't do it. It's just because they're using the mindset of this young athlete that achieved so many things to try and transition into a phase that that mindset, parts of it will definitely be useful, but some parts are really detrimental to making that uh, transition. But in terms of you talk about as an athlete being in the later careers, are they kind of outliers in your opinion that in terms of we talk of athletes such as in the UK, Steve Redgrave is still competing in his 40s. Would you say that's an outlier? Because that would be very destructive, I would have thought, to your body to try and operate with what he was able to do in his early career. Yeah, I mean, outliers is a great, um, is a great segment of, of human performance because they're always outliers. I strongly believe we're all different. We're all giving a repository of genes, abilities, capacities, which are different. Some we can control, some we can't. And there are always examples in all fields of life of outliers. I mean, we know that there was only one Einstein. We know that there was only a a, specific athlete that was able to do something into their 40s or 50s. So, yes, I agree with the... uh, proposition that outliers are out there. I think the problem for a lot of us that we think sometimes that they represent the whole population. So if they can do it, I can do it. 
to some degree, yes, there are some components in that process that you can take from them and implement in your life. But sometimes the um, scale is just not equal. It's just where it is. But how, how in terms of, from a, from a mindset perspective now, Ares, do you kind of get people, because you're going to have outliers in terms of what motivates people, what inspires people. I, 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 and then people will say to come to you and say, well, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do that, sorry. Uh, well, that comes down to actual inner beliefs, really, because, well, I think I get asked the question, well, why were you, why were you able to be successful? I can't actually pinpoint as to why it was obviously to do with the environment that it was within. If you were around like-minded people, that is the norm. So why, why am I going to be an outlier and be slightly different because I'm content and being happy in this environment? Again, I think it comes down to what it is you seek, right? Um, definitely let's, if we put it in the realm of sports, then yes, if you put yourself with a, a group of like-minded people that all strive to achieve the same goal. Um, so if it's group sports, it's a little bit different because the, the group performance is the final goal. If it's an individual, let's say you're a, a runner, for example, okay? You will run with other great athletes, but there's only going to be one that will win the race. And that one is not necessarily the outlier, but that one has all these elements optimized in a better way than the rest of us. Now, when you look at life from a competitive lens, you're already in a disadvantage because there only can be one winner. That's it. Second place doesn't count. Third place, who cares? Fourth place, you don't exist. So that's a very detrimental worldview to have. And this is my biggest issue with sports to begin with. Because, yes, you learn a lot, you experience a lot, you become um, a different version of, of who you are when you are more into this journey. But the being number one or nothing is, for me, a very... Um, it's a very... insular path to take with advantages and disadvantages like anything else. But um, when you asked about the mindset, when people can say I can do it or I can't do it, I think it comes down. And this is something, at least from my personal experience that I've learned, you really have to be very clear with yourself. Why is it you even want to do what it is you set yourself up doing that clarity will set you up for anything, right? Because if that why is not clear for you, let's say I decided I want to climb Everest, okay? And I don't have a clear why. The first obstacles that I will encounter, I will completely abandon the whole thing, right? If my why is so strong that I get to the point where I understand that I'm going to risk my life for it or I'm going to take risks that may... You know, you know, I just met uh, um, a hand amputee just this Friday. He lost his hand in a, basically all his fingers in, in one hand and on the other hand, half of his fingers 
to frice, uh, uh, frostbite climbing. He was a mountaineer here in Canada, and he was in the mindset of he can do anything, right? And being on that mountain, suffering frice, uh, frostbite and almost risking his life, coming back from it, he realized that that mindset served him when he was young and that thinking that we're invincible. And he kept that mindset into his 50s, right? And you're not invincible in your 50s. I don't care who you are. You're not. You're not even when you're younger, but you think you are and you can do, you can take more risk. And, and, and I think to some degree, nature designed us in a way that we can. So, you know, we can break bones and heal faster. We can, you know, tear ligaments and do certain crazy things and, and still recover and continue where if it happens to you when you're 40, then, you know, good luck. But, Erez, that, that comp competitive nature now that you talk about, should that be resonated to history then and be, I don't know, uh, more related to life or death, be like prehistoric time, um, maybe later in history to a certain extent, but maybe we've kind of not fully evolved in terms of to, to the present day to maybe to a certain extent put it to one side. Cause like you were saying, it'll work in the competitive environment, but then once you put it into in a, in a sense, the real world, a lot of people are going to struggle because it's that mentality, uh, win or bust. And some people are, and I could be a testament to that because I'm very much, uh, a competitive person. I don't, I, I like to say that I'm not even in, in, in the, in the realms of social media, you get frustrated at times with, okay, well, why my posts not doing as well as such? And this is, a, this is what you're talking about in terms of this is very detrimental to me. Okay. I've got better to, to be able to take a step back and say, well, it's, it's the actual resonance and the emotional attachment to, to what you've put out is what people are not engaging with as opposed to that person is better than you. Uh, but I think on the one hand, when you are that competitive natured, you're going to struggle because you're always comparing yourself to another individual, no matter what. Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, reflection on it. And, you know, I've, I've learned to not see life as black and white. It just doesn't work that way. So we are all different. We all have different personalities. Our inner constitution dictates a lot of that. And then our upbringing, culture, um, certain things we were exposed to all layer on top of one another and create a certain worldview that we operate with. The competitive personality is only one out of six different personalities. And not everybody falls into the competitive personality. There are many other ways to walk this life. I think when you identify yourself as a competitive person and you understand that this is your nature, that you will always be competitive, now it's more of a matter, how do you harness that tenacity and that need to do something good with it? So... If you take it to sports, that's the best arena because either I win or I lose. So in order to perform in sports, you have to be a competitive person. If you're not competitive, you're not going to be in sports, plain and simple. You're just not going to go there, right? You know, I can, I, I can attest this from people that I know 
that have never, ever competed in their life once. They are so not afraid that they will lose. They are so not interested in the competition as a competition. They just, they just why? Why would you do that? So that's a personality type. Um, and again, I go back to the fact of us knowing ourselves better because if you know you're competitive, now you have something to work with. Now you can take that personality type of yours, learn and understand it much better and utilize it in different ways. Now, if you take everything you did in your sporting career, that has served you tremendously well, right? Am I correct here? I'd like to think so. Some parts of what you've learned now needed to be adjusted to other areas of your life. And that is exactly what I say about this kind of beautiful... Um, if you look at life like a river, right? You don't want to be always in the rapids, right? You don't want to always do, uh, you know, uh, level five type of uh, kayaking, whitewater. You don't. Certain times you do. The excitement is there. The need is there. The, 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 the weather is awesome. You're in Zimbabwe somewhere on a river and it's great. But most time in life, if you can flow like a river, around the obstacles, around the uh, rocks, around the uh, different things that you encounter with more easiness, now you can handle life in a, in a different way. And I think this is what we all want at the end of the day. It's not the one thing or what somebody else told you you should be or you should achieve. This is the, the personal journey of understanding that there is no destination here. If you can learn to find inner peace, and inner peace, it's not from a spiritual way of, oh, you know, everything is taken care of. I don't need to do anything. I just need to open my heart. Come on. This is life. Easiness is being able to handle everything that is thrown at you without losing your mind, without going into these dark places of depression or self-abuse or 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 detrimental self-talk or behavior that you will end in a much more difficult place um, that will be very difficult to climb out from. Some people don't even ever climb out of it. So I think that's the beauty of understanding who you are, what your, what your human traits are that you were born with. And then there are others that you can develop. I'm not saying that that you know, negates everything else. But there are certain things you're very good at and there are certain things you can develop and there are certain things you will just never be good at. So if you recognize that as well, that's not a bad thing. You know, I cannot be a ballet dancer, even if I really, really want to. I won't be. So, you know, sometimes you recognize it and it makes it a little easier. So that moves in nicely to my penultimate question for you, Erez. And you may have touched upon it a little bit just there. But how would you get somebody to either challenge or change their perception of their mindset? I don't. That's my answer. I think that at the end, and this is my personal belief, when you think you need to change, when you think you need to be someone else, when you think you need to shift something in your life, and I use think very uh, in a very precise way 
because those are wannabe ideas. Those are ideas that you read in a book or you heard someone talk about and you say, oh, this would be great if I could do this or if I was able to do it or whatever. I think that the end result here is when you move from think to I need this. So you will have to reach a certain point in life where you have to make a change because you need that change. Not because you want to or you think you need to or somebody else suggested to or alluded that this would be a great way to live life. That's great for them. That's great for their case studies. But for you, it may not even hit a level of... Uh, the ground is not fertilized enough to grow that plant yet, right? Maybe you need to be in a more difficult situation. That's unfortunately something I've learned again and again. Maybe I'm a little biased because, you know, three near-death experiences have brought me there. But I do think that we do need to hit rock bottom in order to really change. Uh, pain and suffering is the best teacher out there. There is no selection to be had when you're in that position. You either elevate yourself and grow from there or you, you know, check out. Um, the idea of positive change, you know, kind of the self-motivation world, the self-inspiration world. I think those are good to give you a broader perspective, but for most people, I don't think it really works because these are nice things to do. These are things that you believe, you think that they are better if you do them this way or that way. But the beauty of it, and, and I always say this, is that this will push you to experiment. This will push you to try it. This will push you to say, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe I should wake up at 5 a.m. every morning and do some meditation and some stretching and write a journal. You know, for some people, this would be a ridiculous process. It will give them nothing. It will frustrate them. They will never achieve anything. And for others, this will be a life-changing experience. So... That's why I say life is self-experimentation for us. You're exposed to different things, then you try them, and you always take the things that work for you. That's the beauty here. And my final question to Erez before we wrap up the episode, if you have to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? In one sentence, it will be... And I always go back to it. It will be to find that beautiful intersection between easiness with IS and easiness with EAS. It's just the beauty of finding that place where you can handle life and doesn't matter what happens. Not to say that you resolve everything and you become a millionaire overnight or you have a million people on social media or whatever. No, no, no. But you handle that agitation and that discomfort in a way that gives you some inner peace. I think that's a great summary. So once again, Erez, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete podcast. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. And uh, I hope to uh, have you on board uh, to join the MPT Strong podcast as well. I look forward to it. Wonderful. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and let Erez and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging us over on Instagram at Erez Avramov. So that's E-R-E-Z-A-V-R-A-M-O-V. -E -E and 
at James O. Roberts 11. You can do the same on Twitter and Facebook. And do check out his website, amputeestrong.com. And once again, do check out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk forward slash free dash resources. Make sure to check those out. The links will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipsim.com under the category general. So once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next week for another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast.